This is Church of the Resurrection in Wheaton, Illinois. On Saturday mornings when I'm in town, I take a brisk walk a mile and a half from my house in East Aurora to downtown Aurora to Two Brothers Roundhouse, where I will get a cup of coffee and just sit and read and read fun things that I'm interested in, and then people will show up that I've been getting together with for the last three, four years, and one of my friends is a woman named Susan. Susan lives on the west side of Aurora. She volunteers in the school, and she has, real, has a heart for the poverty of Aurora, the broken families in Aurora, although she doesn't have a whole lot of hope. Um, and she will tell me, she knows I'm a pastor, so she said in one of our conversations, two things that I want you to know about me. First, don't try to convert me. Promise you won't try to convert me. And I said, mm, okay. Um, and then, behind my back. Um, and then, <laughs> secondly, <laughs> I said, actually, that's true. I don't want to convert you in the sense that you're like some kind of object that I'm trying to get what I believe. Um, but she also says, I need you to know I hate religion. I hate organized religion. And of all the organized religions, I hate Christianity the most. And I wanted to say, we're not really that organized, just so you know. <laughs> but I didn't say that. <laughs> so when somebody says something like that, seriously, I am serious. I just want to hug them. Not because I feel bad for them, because I just feel like that's just so honest. And I bet there's reasons, really good reasons, why you think and feel that way. So I'm just so glad you told me that. And we got that out on the table. The assumption that Susan has is that Christianity is bad news. It's bad news for her. It's bad news for the world. Well, you can't read very far in the New Testament without hearing something like the message of Jesus, the message of the gospel is good news. It's incredible good news. So you heard in the scripture reading, the first scripture reading from a book called 1 Peter, you heard this, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. Now, I want to ask this morning, what's so good about the good news about Jesus? What's so good about it that you would, would want to believe it. What's so good about it that you would not only want to believe it, but you'd want to proclaim it? You would want somebody else to believe it. What's so good about it that you would even give your life? You would risk your own reputation. You would risk your own popularity to share that good news with somebody else. Well, I'm going to get back to those questions. But we need to take a little journey first. We need to understand a lot of context for what that good news was when it came into the world it came into at the time. So let's take an imaginary trip back in time, do some tri time traveling on Res Ship Enterprise, <laughs> Captain's Log. I have never watched an entire episode of Star Trek. <laughs> but I get the idea. Um, but 
If you do watch it, I have gentleness and respect for you, okay? <laughs> Just want you to know. So let's go back in time. A man named Peter is writing this letter to followers of Jesus, probably coming from Jewish backgrounds, followers who are now following Jesus as Messiah. They're scattered throughout the Roman Empire. Peter's probably writing from Rome, the New York City of his day, a city of power and influence and the greatest superpower, the only superpower on the earth. He's writing in what has been called the golden age of the Roman Empire, 50 years after the Emperor Augustus. What would you see? What would you see if we took a trip back there on Res Ship Enterprise? Well, it really depends a lot if you're rich or if you're poor. If you're 5% of the rich population, by the way, I'm drawing from a number of different sources. I'm not going to give you the footnoted version. If you want that, I can give that to you. If you're 5% of the rich, life is really good. It's a great empire. Monuments, temples, architecture, the Colosseum, the arts, theater, poetry, philosophy, intellectuals. An empire that spread from, from Africa, northern Africa, to Britain with a connection of 1,000s of miles of roads. If you're rich, you might reside in an elegant home, maybe a sprawling country villa. And you might gather your friends for a delightful summer evening, according to the historian Edward Gibbon, and I quote, you might have a whole sequence, you and your guests, of wild boar stuffed with live thrushes. Those are birds. They're alive in the boar. How great is that? <laughs> with your best friends, birds flying out of the boar. <laughs> Cakes with liquid saffron. Do you know how expensive saffron is? Have you ever cooked with saffron? Like this little much is like $100. Small birds stuffed with raisins and dates. After dinner, you might feel like going for a stroll, so you go to the theater, see some tragedy, because Greeks or the Romans and the Greeks would eventually love tragedy. Or if you want something more robust, you would go to the gladiator games. You would cheer like crazy as people are getting ripped to shreds by wild beasts. It was great. On the way home, you may stop at a brothel which dotted the Roman streets, as one historian said, Taco Bells and Starbucks dot our suburbs today. What about religion? Well, oh, that's everywhere. Very religious. Hundreds of gods. Somebody said Romans took in gods like museums take in paintings. We'll find room for that one. Sure, we'll build another wing. Put some more gods in there. It's not a problem. Very tolerant people. Very inclusive. Except they did have their limits. One limit was you had to give ultimate allegiance to the emperor. You worship whatever you want, whoever you want, how many gods you want give your ultimate allegiance to the emperor. The whole economy, the whole political system depended on that. So you'd make a little offering. Just go by a little, some little temple and just say, oh, praise be to the emperor. I give my allegiance to the emperor. 
And then you can go on and worship whoever you want. But the emperor had to be number one. So there's some flaws, but it's a great empire. And you are a proud citizen of what Gibbon called the benevolent master, the Roman Empire. What if you're poor? Well, that's a really different story. One historian said the cities of Rome were more crowded and crime-infested and filthy and disease-ridden than many third-world cities today. You might live in one of the many three- to eight-story apartment buildings. They didn't have civil engineers back then, structural engineers. Once again, praise God for engineers. And lawyers, too, that could sue people when these buildings collapsed, which they often did. So if you're really poor, you live up on the eighth floor. Two out of five people are a slave. As Father Brett, Brett pointed out last week, the, this, the slavery wasn't the same as slavery we've still experienced, but as Father Brett also pointed out, that still being a slave is not an easy life. They had a practice, a widespread practice, actually. It was really hard, especially hard on newborn children. So if you were defective, if you were unhealthy, or maybe you're just a girl, and the Roman dad didn't want a girl, you would be left outside the city to be exposed to death or eaten by wild dogs. Such was the golden age of the Roman Empire. Beautiful, structurally, politically, administratively, well-run, but broken. About 50 years after Augustus, the first emperor, who said of himself that he had exceeded all in influence, which he probably wasn't lying. His people called him son of God. His statues were everywhere. His image was on every coin. Every time you wanted to buy something, you would remember Augustus, the emperor. His name was the dawn of a new age. So about 50 years, still, we're still in the golden age of the Roman Empire. There's this new community with a new vision for human flourishing. Peter is writing to this community in these cities scattered throughout the empire. By the time Peter's writing, maybe 65 A.D., around there, it's really small. Maybe historians estimate 5,000 Christians, 5,000 people coming from Jewish backgrounds or coming from Gentile backgrounds and coming to Jesus the Messiah. But it's like yeast, good yeast in the lump of the Roman Empire. It's microscopic. You can't see it. You can't hear it. It's almost invisible. But something is changing. Something is growing. Now, we're going to get back to 1 Peter. Because we have to understand the context. If you don't get the context, you don't, we're not going to get how radical this is. And so I've been reading these books on Roman history, and I've been trying to talk to friends about it, and I'm just like, I feel like a total nerd because I'm just like so excited about this. I was talking to a couple people, and they're like, uh, that's interesting. I think I have to go to the restroom now. But, um, <laughs> so thank you. You're a captive audience now. So, but turn to 1 Peter 1.1 1, 1 in your Bibles. Because we're going to walk through different parts of this and see what this message, why it's so revolutionary. 
So Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion, and then he writes to numerous cities scattered throughout the Roman Empire. What is an exile? Well, an exile is someone that does not have political power. An exile, the Christians had, they didn't have politicians that were going to listen to their concerns. They, didn't, they couldn't petition the emperor. They didn't own property. They didn't own church buildings for almost 300 years. So they have nothing, no cultural influence, no Christian schools, and they have a huge PR problem. So their savior, the one that they say is Lord, I'll get to that in a minute, was a self-educated Jewish itinerant rabbi who never married, who was born in a small town, and who was crucified on a cross. Now, for the Romans, the word crucifixion was so abhorrent that if you're at one of these dinners that Edward Gibbon described, you wouldn't even say the word. It was like a swear word. Nobody even said it because it was reserved for the lowest of the lowest slaves and political rebels and revolutionaries. So such is the beginning of the Christian movement. It drew a lot from that 95% of the poor, the slaves. Women were really integral to this movement from the very beginning. But it also, as it began to grow, it also began to draw from the intellectual class, the educated class, that 5% of the wealthy. Some of them would come in as well. By the time Peter was writing, there was suspicious and hostility towards this movement. It was getting some notoriety, just a little bit. And so Peter would say throughout this letter, he, he says things like, you might suffer. You might suffer. In verse 14 of the passage you had read, you, sh you might suffer for righteousness' sake. That might happen to you. you have verse 17, you might suffer for doing good. It may happen to you. And yet, this movement had confidence in Peter's words, in verses, chapter 2, verses 9 and 10, he says, you are a chosen race. You, you 5,000 people scattered around these little house churches, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. The movement kept growing really slowly at first. We have a letter, actually a historical document, from a guy named Pliny the Younger, who was a Roman official, one of the elite, one of the educated. His father was also a Roman official. He's writing to somebody above him in government, and he's writing about the Christians. And he's saying, he calls them, he says they believe a perverse and extravagant superstition. He says they're obstinate, but don't worry, boss, I'll flip them. I can flip them. I'll put some pressure on them. I'll put some heat on them, and they will fold like one of those eight-story apartment buildings. Well, some of them probably did, but most of them didn't. Most of them did not fold. And so by the year 100 AD, there was an estimated 10,000 followers of Jesus. By the year 200, there was 250,000 followers of Jesus. By the year 300, there were 5 million. That's still less than 10% of the population. Meeting in 65,000 house churches throughout the Roman Empire. 
Why against all odds, as one subtitle to one of these books I've been reading reads, how this obscure marginal Jesus movement became the dominant religious force in the Western world in a few centuries. How did that happen? So this is the story I'm geeking out about. This, this is like incredible. This should not have happened. This is like the greatest comeback story, the greatest underdog story of all time. How did this happen? Well, I love this line from a poem by Gerhard Manley Hopkins, uh, The Grandeur of God. He's got this line. He's talking about nature. He's talking about creation, but I think it applies to the gospel. He said, there lives the dearest, the dearest freshness deep down things. In spite of how we've tried to soil things and smear things and trot on things, there lives the dearest freshness deep down things. There was something fresh about this yeast. There was something, this vision for flourishing was something the world had never seen before and it still has never seen before. Let me just break it down this way with three things. There was a new power or a fresh power. There was a new Lord or a fresh Lord. There were new virtues flowing out of that new power and new Lord. And it's really important to keep all those three things together, and it's really important to have them in that order. Well, I guess the first two you could switch up. But the last one, the new virtues, come from the new Lord and the new power. So look at the new, po the new power, 1 Peter verse 3. Chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. It was a living hope through the resurrection, a new power. The Romans, with all their gods, all their museum full of gods, didn't have that kind of new power. If... This new Lord that I'm going to talk about conquered death and truly came back and is truly alive and truly been resurrected, then what kind of stuff might happen in my life and in your life? What kind of hope might he be able to give us today in our broken and despairing places of our life? Who knows what's possible? That's the new power. And it comes from the new Lord. I read that verse in chapter 3, verse 15. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. I just want to stop right there. Remember what I said about the emperor, Augustus? He is Lord. Do you know how dangerous, how subversive, how politically unwise it would be to say, Jesus is Lord. Just that statement was revolutionary. I said the Romans were tolerant, but that's something they didn't put up with. A group of people saying, we got another Lord. They let the Jewish people get away with it because the Jewish people were more integrally interwoven into the culture at that time. But this Christian movement coming out of Judaism, but believing in Jesus as Messiah? Uh-uh. That's why Pliny said, I'm going to flip these people. I'm going to make them crumble. So all the Christians had to do is they're walking by one of these statues of the emperor. All they had to do was just take a little offering, 
just take a little money or take a little grain or take something and just throw it uh, at Caesar, at the, the emperor's feet, and just bow. I give my allegiance to the emperor. That's all they had to do. Just go on with your life. Live your life. What's the big deal? But those early followers, just they wouldn't do it. They were, as Pliny said, they were obstinate. These people are so obstinate. What's wrong with them? Why didn't they do it? Because they believed with every fiber of their being, they become convinced, most of them against their will. I mean, they didn't, they didn't, they didn't plan on getting to this place in their spiritual lives, but they just they encountered something. They encountered this new power. They encountered this new Lord. So they believed that this is the only Lord. This is the only one that can set us free. This is the only one who's going to ultimately judge our lives. And he was different, really different. So the Roman emperors, like Augustus, they proclaimed their own greatness. Jesus came in humility. He washed people's feet. They came to crush. He came to heal. They came to live for themselves. He came to live for us. Emperors lived in luxurious, unlimited comfort. Jesus came with wounds. Turn with me to one of the most moving verses in 1 Peter, verse 24. He's talking about this new Lord. He's the one that's the Lord, remember? He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. A Lord with wounds for us? Nobody had ever heard of anything like that. Now, let's just imagine that that message gets into the heart of your life, that that Lord is your Lord. And, and by the way, let me just pause because you might think, well, what is this Lord talk? I, I don't have a Lord. I don't have lords ruling over me. I mean, we're not in Rome anymore. We're not in Great Britain in the day when there were all these lords ruling over people. Let me just say, you have a Lord. Everybody has a Lord. It's whatever drives you. It's whatever is you most value and love. Let me give you an example. So I was reading People magazine, which I'm not wont to do, <laughs> but it was there, and I had nothing else to read, and so I picked it up. And there's an article about a famous actor, movie producer, who overcame a horrible childhood and now has a billion dollars, and he was talking about how great his life is, despite the fact that he works 16 hours a day every day of the week. But his family's very understanding. And I thought, I was reading that, and I got, you have a Lord. Your Lord is achievement. Your Lord is wealth. Your Lord is fame. Your Lord is never enough. That's your Lord. We all have a Lord. So if Jesus becomes your Lord, if you say, Jesus, I believe that you're risen from the dead, I believe, and I want you to be my Lord, I don't know all that, what that means, but I want you to be my Lord. You take that into the center of your being. What kind of person will you become? Here's God in human flesh, as the Gospel of John says, when you've seen me, Jesus says, when you've seen me, you've seen the Father. You've seen God. There's no God behind me. I am God in the human flesh. When you've seen me, that's you've seen God. What kind of God is that? That's a God who dies for and forgives his enemies, lays down his life for not only his friends, but for those who are his enemies. Would you turn around and start oppressing people? Not if you really got it. 
You would never do that. That would be the last thing on your mind. You would be, I want to be like Jesus. I want to lay down my life for others. So when you start hanging around like Jesus in his church, you develop new virtues. Peter lists five of them in verse 8. He says, finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Let me just focus on just two of those. And all of these, by the way, are Christ-like virtues. That's why Peter includes them. What about brotherly love? What's so revolutionary about that? Haven't we talk, been talking about brotherly love for like 400 years? Well, in the Roman world, that just didn't happen. You wouldn't say to your slaves, you are my brother. A slave wouldn't say to his owner, master, thank you, brother, for how you're treating me. That just didn't happen. But in Christ, in these house churches scattered throughout the Roman Empire, the rich and the poor, Jew and Gentiles, slaves and their masters became brothers and sisters in Christ. Sometimes people ask, why didn't those early Christians do more to abolish slavery? I think, you know, that's a really good question. Okay, look at it from their point. There's 5,000 of them. They are 0.10% of the population. They have nobody in politics. Actually, I think this is the most amazing and the most subversive and the wisest and the most effective strategy. They say, oh, you're brothers and sisters in Christ. And somebody who's a slave might be the spiritual elder, the spiritual father. Somebody who's poor might be the spiritual father or mother of somebody that's a rich owner. How subversive is that? That's like messing everything up. All the hierarchies are getting twisted and turned around. That's like the yeast in the dough. Or like I like to think of it, it's like termites. It's like these little spiritual termites in the foundation of slavery, just kind of gnawing away until boom, it collapses. How about humility? Humility was not a Roman virtue. It was actually, it, the word literally means low-mindedness. It meant you were weak. It meant you were stupid. And here, because of Jesus, humility becomes a life-giving thing. That is amazing. Now, this virtue is really important because this is how we deal with the ways the church has failed. And it has. Suppose my friend Susan has a good point. The church should model the humility of repentance to say, you are right. And on behalf of the church, I ask your forgiveness. I've known Bishop Stewart for, oh, 25 years now. And um, one of the things I appreciate about you as the leader of our church is you model that. And if you were at Fully Alive, we talked about a lot of really controversial issues, a lot of really painful issues. One of the things I appreciate about you is your willingness to model that kind of humility and repentance. And we've worked through some things. We've had to do that with each other, you know, so... Um, but I want to say we have a resource from within our faith to deal with the failures of the church to practice the faith. It's called repentance. 
And that's why we do this every Sunday, and we're not just playing a game. We really mean it when we say we kneel and confess our sins. So those new virtues. Now, it might be tempting to think, well, that was back then. Today, the church is just, I don't know, it's blah. It's maybe hard-hearted. It's unnecessary. About 10 years ago, I could relate to that. So I moved here after being a pastor for 20-some years, and I moved here, and then I was, I was not a pastor. So I had led 22 Christmas Eve services. I was in charge. I had to preach. I had to do the children's sermon. I had to stay late. I had to lock up. And I was just tired of doing Christmas Eve services. So it's Christmas Eve. I'm not working at a church anymore. I'm not a pastor anymore. And I'm in Trader Joe's, and I got two bottles of wine. And I'm thinking... I could just go home, drink these bottles of wine by myself. I don't have to go to church. And then this other thought crossed my mind. I don't have to ever come back. I can just walk away. And I can do like what my really smart non-Christian friends on Long Island would do, get up on a Sunday morning and read the New York Times and eat a bagel with lox and cream cheese and, and uh, just take it easy. That thought crossed my mind. But, just in case you're wondering, I didn't act on it. Because here I am, 10 years later. And it's like, he seems to be enjoying this role. And I am. <laughs> so I asked myself, I was talking to my son-in-law and my daughter. I was asking, I was telling them about this, and they said, why, why did you stay? What made you stay? You actually pressed into the church. And you've kept pressing into the church. Well, today I would put it like this. I, just, I told them, because it's really simple, I have just seen too much. I've seen too much. And they looked a little confused. Like I was saying, I've seen too much bad stuff. I said, yeah, yeah, I've seen a lot of bad stuff. Remember, I've worked in four churches. I've seen how the sausage gets made sometimes, so I get it. But I've seen too much good stuff. And then I just started telling them. I started rattling these, uh, you know, I, what, what would I tell the people of Church of Resurrection? I'd say, I'd say, come with me. Come with me to West Aurora. Come with me to rest, West Aurora, where one of our church plants, led by my daughter and son-in-law, City of Light Anglican, which I encourage you to go to. And I said in the first service, I keep talking, telling you people to go, and nobody ever goes. So I say, go some Sunday. We release you to go for a Sunday and check out one of our church plants. It's only a half an hour away. But every Tuesday and Thursday night, they have 120 refugees and immigrants that come to the space that they're using for their church to teach ESL to recently arriving immigrants and refugees. Or come with me to Joss, Nigeria, where our friend Archbishop Kwashi and his, his wife, Mama Gloria Kwashi, have adopted 60 children from war and terror. And their goal is, his goal is to retire and to build a home so they can take in a thousand children. Who would do that? Or come with me to Western Highlands of Papua New Guinea, Kidjip, Nazarene Hospital, where eight doctors have given up salaries of $350,000 to a million dollars to work for negative money. They have to raise their own support because it's some of the worst health care in the world. Or come with me through Church of the Resurrection, through our own ministries, come to DuPage County Jail, where people are leading a Bible study for prisoners, where people are parenting, providing parenting skills for some of the men who have never been parented, 
Or come with me on Friday night to our replanted ministry. Christopher Hitchens once said, the atheist, he once said, religion poisons everything. And I think, really? Everything? I would say, yeah, some religion poisons some things. But when the gospel comes in its full goodness and beauty and power, it is beautiful. And it is good news. You see, so back to my question. Why would you believe this? How would you believe this? Well, one thing I could do, and maybe it's the way you were raised, is I could say, you must believe in Jesus. You need to be more serious. You need to work harder. You need to try to be a better person. Now, there's nothing wrong with challenging people to live into these new virtues. But the gospel is actually another way. It's like, wait a minute. Let's just back up and look at it. Look at the story. Look at how it developed. Look at what it came into. Look at how revolutionary it is. Look at how life-giving it is. Look at who this new Lord is. Look at how much he loves you and how much he's done for you. As another New Testament writer said, behold, what manner of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. So I want you to behold today. I want you to see it today. Have you ever experienced that deep-down freshness? Maybe you've never experienced that. Maybe religion for you is just going through the motions or relying on yourself to become a more decent person. You've not been born again to a living hope. You can be born again. You can have a new Lord with new virtues. Ask him. Reach out and ask him to start that today. Maybe you're a Christian, but you have a little love for Jesus or joy in your heart, and you've lost the deep-down freshness. Something else has taken over, skepticism, unbelief, cynicism. Today may be your day to say, Lord Jesus, I want to see again. I want to behold again. I want to believe again, but I can't do that by myself. I need the church, and I need you to help me do that. I love the message of 1 Peter. It says, come to him, in chapter 2, verse 4, and right in the middle of the book, come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. So come to him. Come to this living stone. Amen. Thanks for listening. Our vision at Church of the Resurrection is to equip everyone for transformation. As part of that vision, we love to share dynamic teaching, original music, and stories of transformation. For more of what you heard today, check out the rest of our podcast. To learn more about our ministry, visit churchres.org.